Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled On the Case to Improve Outcomes in Uncontrolled Asthma, Best Practices to Enhance Clinical Care. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Wexler, Professor of Medicine and Director of the National Jewish Co and Family Asthma Institute at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. In this program, we'll be discussing uncontrolled asthma, and specifically, we'll be looking at how we can reduce reliance on oral corticosteroids by intensifying treatment with biologics. Let's start with a case study. Sam is a 14-year-old boy who presents with a recent increase in asthma exacerbations. He was diagnosed with asthma at age 6 and maintained on inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta-agonists for over two years. However, he comes in now with his parents reporting more frequent exacerbations. They now ask if steroids would be a good option. The Global Initiative for Asthma states that oral steroids can be life-saving during asthma exacerbations. However, frequent OCS use, two times a year or more, is indicative of uncontrolled asthma. Low-dose maintenance oral corticosteroids really should only be considered as a last resort due to their serious long-term side effects. In the real world, what is oral corticosteroid use like? Well, we know that 50% of all asthma patients report using oral corticosteroids every year, and up to 5% of patients with asthma receive long-term daily oral corticosteroids. Long-term oral corticosteroid use, even low dose, is associated with significant risk. It's associated with risk of potentially debilitating outcomes and even mortality. Just four to five lifetime courses of oral corticosteroids is associated with significant risk. And daily oral corticosteroids are associated also with significant complications, such as osteoporosis, fractures, hypertension, diabetes, mood disturbances, sleep disturbances, cataracts and glaucoma, adrenal insufficiency, and even increased risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. In children, inhaled corticosteroids and oral corticosteroids can suppress growth. So in the pediatric population, it's recommended that you check the child's height at least annually for signs of reduced growth velocity and ensure that a child's medication is appropriate and at the lowest effective dose to minimize risk of adverse events and exacerbations. The Global Initiative for Asthma recommends a stepwise approach for the overall management of patients with asthma. They recommend starting off with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, escalating the dose of inhaled steroid, and adding a beta agonist as needed. And then, as patients become more severe, it's recommended that one consider adding on alternative therapies, such as teotropium or one of the many biologics that we have available to help us address our patients' severe asthma. We've relied on oral corticosteroids as a rescue medication for asthma for a long time, 
And while steroids may control exacerbations, it's important to remember that there are significant risks. Our major goals should be to prevent exacerbations and also to reduce oral steroid use and limit their complications. Other guideline-recommended therapies are a better option for most patients, and we'll talk more about that in the next session. Now let's meet another patient, Lucy, who's 35 years old and has steroid-dependent severe asthma. She's been maintained on triple combination therapy with inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting beta agonists, and long-acting antimuscarinic agents with increasing oral corticosteroid use. She was referred from her PCP due to her increasing dependence on oral corticosteroids, and she wants to discuss other options. There are currently six biologics approved by the FDA for the management of patients with asthma. There's omelizumab, which targets IgE, mepolizumab and resolizumab, which target IL-5, benralizumab, which targets the IL-5 receptor alpha, dupilumab, which targets IL-4 receptor alpha, as well as IL-13, and tezipilumab, which targets TSLP, or thymic stromal lymphopoietin. These therapies have various indications from moderate to severe asthma to patients with eosinophilic asthma and even oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma. All these biologics are administered by subcutaneous injection, except for resolizumab, which is administered intravenously. The dosing schedules for each drug vary and range from administration every two weeks up to every eight weeks and can depend on patient age and or weight. Some biologics require a loading dose before starting the maintenance dosing schedule. The long-term goals of asthma treatment are really to achieve good symptom control, to maintain normal activity levels, to reduce risk of exacerbations and airflow limitation, and to reduce risk of side effects from treatment, particularly from oral corticosteroids. Now, with these biologic therapies, clinical or complete remission from asthma attacks, not just minimization of them, may be possible with treatment. What can we achieve with these biologic therapies? With these six biologic therapies, we have the potential to reduce exacerbations from anywhere from down to 25% up to 70% of baseline exacerbation rate. Several of these therapies, including mepolizumab, bedulizumab, and dupilumab, have been shown to facilitate oral corticosteroid withdrawal. Also, these biologic therapies have been shown to improve lung function to varying degrees. Most recently, there was one study that demonstrated that there's also the potential to reduce inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists with biologic use, perhaps even reducing cost and side effects of those therapies without increasing risk of exacerbation significantly. So, as you can see, there is strong evidence to support the effectiveness of biologics in improving asthma control. In our next section, we'll look at the available efficacy data for biologics in children. Now let's take a look again at Sam, our 14-year-old patient with asthma. His parents asked about introducing steroids to address his increasingly frequent exacerbations, but 
Sam agrees to start on biologic, per guideline recommendations. There are many challenges in the management of pediatric asthma patients. First of all, there are diagnostic challenges. Many of these patients have comorbidities and factors that complicate the diagnosis of asthma. Furthermore, some routine assessments that we use in adults are not possible in younger children. Adherence is another big issue. Children often forget to use their inhalers. There's also a big fear of shots, and most of the biologic therapies that we have are subcutaneously administered. This is also a very heterogeneous population, and there's a lack of good validated biomarkers for patients, making it challenging to ask, what type of asthma does this patient have? That results in our being unable to provide precision medicine for many patients with severe disease. Lastly, there's a lack of good efficacy and safety data in children for most of the novel biologic therapies, and most of the evidence that we have is from studies in adults. We now have several therapies that are approved for moderate to severe asthma in children. It's important to recognize that there are three therapies that are approved down to age six, including obolizumab that targets IgE, mepolizumab that targets interleukin-5, and dupilumab that targets the IL-4 receptor alpha as well as IL-13. Both benralizumab and tezipelumab are approved down to age 12 and provide effective therapy for that patient population. What can we achieve with these biologic therapies for severe asthma in children? The major impact is that all of these therapies can reduce asthma exacerbations to variable degrees. However, while these therapies have proven efficacy in reducing exacerbations, their benefits in terms of lung function or oral corticosteroids is currently less clear. In our next session, we'll discuss other strategies for reducing oral corticosteroid use in our patients. Now let's get back to Lucy, who was referred from her primary care provider to discuss other options to reduce oral steroid dependence. She agreed to start on a biologic and to begin to taper off of her oral corticosteroids. It's now recommended that she have follow-up a month after starting her biologic. Before considering any step-up in treatment, one must first confirm that symptoms are due to asthma and address common problems. You have to confirm correct inhaler technique, address suboptimal adherence, assess allergy and environmental exposure, identify and manage comorbidities and modifiable risk factors. And finally, it's so important to assess type 2 biomarkers. There are several factors that help inform the selection of a biologic, and the choice of biologic should take into account a variety of different factors, including patients' endotypes or their clinical biomarkers, as well as a variety of patient-focused aspects. One should look at whether or not the patient has type 2 inflammation, whether or not the patient is allergic or has a high serum IgE, whether or not the patient has high blood or sputum eosinophils. Sometimes some patients are non-eosinophilic and may require a different biologic therapy. One can also look at levels of exhaled nitric oxide or whether or not the patient is oral steroid dependent. Lastly, it's important to look at a variety of different type 2 comorbidities, 
so we can address those as well as the severe asthma. It's important to remember that treatment intensification for patients at all severity levels should first aim to optimize inhaled corticosteroid dose. One should switch or adjust inhaled corticosteroids as well as reliever regimens to reduce exacerbations. One could also consider non-pharmacologic add-on therapies or trials of non-biologic add-on medications. Once a patient started on a biologic therapy, it's so important to do periodic assessments to evaluate the effectiveness of the new biologic. One can do this utilizing standardized asthma control tools as needed. Every four to six months, it's important to evaluate symptom burden, healthcare utilization, the frequency of exacerbations, as well as lung function. One should also ask about oral corticosteroid use. And of course, it's so important to evaluate quality of life in our patients. When you see your patients, if the response is suboptimal, one should consider switching to another biologic, but only after assessing adherence and managing concurrent comorbidities. Once a patient begins treatment with biologic, it's also important to consider safety and side effects. And that's what we'll touch on in the final session of our program. Now let's get back to our patient, Lucy, the 35-year-old patient who agreed to begin a biologic. During her follow-up visit to review the new treatment plan, she wants to discuss concerns about harmful side effects she recently read about online. Biologic therapies for asthma generally have very good safety profiles. Most rates of reported adverse events were similar to rates in the placebo groups. However, one should be on the lookout for common side effects, including headaches, fever, abdominal pain, injection site reactions, sore throat, arthralgias, and back pain. These are all commonly seen with many of our biologic therapies. However, there are several unique adverse events that one should also be on the lookout for. Hypersensitivity reactions can occur with all of these therapies, and in those circumstances, one should either hold or discontinue treatment. Some cases of anaphylaxis have also been reported, particularly with omalizumab and reslizumab. One should be aggressive with treatment with those and even consider use of epinephrine in some of those patients. Herpes zoster cases have been reported in a subset of patients with meplizumab, particularly older patients. So one should consider vaccinating those patients particularly those who are over 50 years of age, at least a month prior to initiation. Eosinophilia has also been reported in patients treated with dupilumab. This isn't an unexpected side effect because when you block IL-4 and IL-13 with dupilumab, you're blocking the trafficking of eosinophils from the blood into the tissue. That can result in higher levels of blood eosinophils. In those circumstances, one should be on the lookout for a variety of different eosinophilic disorders. Lastly, conjunctivitis has been reported in a subset of patients treated with dupilumab. For those patients, it's important to co-manage them with their local ophthalmologist. In sum, the safety profile of biologics in severe asthma are generally similar to one another and to placebo. However, 
there are several rare but potentially serious adverse events that are important to consider. That concludes our program. Hopefully, I've convinced you to reduce oral steroid use in your patients as much as possible. I hope that you'll also consider using a biologic in your asthma patients who have poor disease control, per the recent GINA guideline update. Thank you so much for your attention today. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.